Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're studying through this book. We get to chapter 11 this morning. 2 Corinthians 11, and we'll be looking at the first 15 verses, first half of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 15. You know, it's amazing what people can do if they have to. Um, do you ever know someone who's just by nature a timid person, someone who had trouble even looking you in the eye, let alone disagreeing with you? Someone who would let, would let everybody walk over them before they would confront somebody who was bullying them? I suspect we've all known such people. Maybe we've been such people. But every once in a while, one of those folks surprises you. Something happens, some crisis arises, probably not something uh, having to do with them directly, but some threat to someone that they love, and suddenly they come out swinging. With single-minded purpose, they take on insurmountable odds with boldness and forcefulness that you didn't think they had in them. Here they come, suddenly feeling no fear or timidity at all. They will not be turned away. I've seen it a few times, but it's amazing to watch. You just say, whoa, I didn't know he had that in him. I think that's kind of what we have in our text a little bit. You know, Paul was accused of being so timid and soft-spoken, and the truth is he was a scholar. And uh, if you've ever known any scholars, they tend to have a certain personality. They're kind of quiet and thoughtful, and whatever you say, well, there's always this other side, and they tend to not be so dogmatic, perhaps. And uh, he wrote, when he wrote letters from a distance, they were, his letters were rather pointed as he reasoned carefully, but... In person, he just wasn't very impressive, and people walked over him, and he didn't defend himself too loudly, and didn't put himself forward. Ah, but in this text this morning, his back is against the wall. He's not concerned for himself, but he's concerned about what he sees happening in this church at Corinth. And so here he comes, bold and fearless, totally out of character, it seems. In fact, he even surprises himself. He says, put up with a little of my foolishness here. And, and later on, he, he apologizes again. But here he comes, and nothing is going to stop him. But in the process, he teaches us some really important things. Let's listen for 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you're already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and I will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. 
For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as, a, as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Two great truths, two lessons, which I think we ought to learn from this passage, two very closely related uh, truths. The first is this, beware of counterfeit Christianity. Beware of counterfeit Christianity. When we talk about phony Christianity, we tend to think of hypocrisy. People who claim to believe, but their actions show that uh, their faith is just empty talk. And there's lots of that around. We've all known that kind of phony, hypocritical kind of Christianity. But here I've used a different word. I've used the word counterfeit. That's a different problem. People take counterfeit money in good faith. They believe it to be legitimate. They may work hard for it. But in reality, it's absolutely worthless. That's what our text warns us about this morning, not just about hypocrisy, but about inadvertently believing a lie, accepting and embracing a counterfeit Christianity. Now that threat of a counterfeit Christianity is stated explicitly in verse 4, which is a key verse here. Let me read it again. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it, etc., etc. Do you hear the reference to counterfeit Christianity there? A different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. This is a key verse to the whole section here. Here we see that Paul was not just having a personality conflict with these new leaders that had come into the church. There was not just some little trivial thing that had gotten blown out of proportion. The church at Corinth was being degraded by counterfeit faith that was being passed around within the body. Counterfeit views. So what exactly did that look like? What did that counterfeit look like? How, what's the definition of that? What's the apostle talking about? Well, it's not really an easy question to answer in this case. Uh, there are many, many opinions that people have, have, people have tried to grapple with what's going on and exactly what's being taught in Corinth by all these teachers who are opposing Paul. There are several possibilities, and uh, there are some other counterfeits that we know about that it could have been. So let me just mention a couple. Uh, it could have been the same false gospel which plagued the churches in uh, the area of Galatia. You remember in, uh, in, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul gave a passionate warning about that. Let me read some of it. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. There it is, that counterfeit gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. There's a different faith. There's a counterfeit Christianity going on in Galatia. In that case, the false gospel was a return to law-keeping as our hope of being acceptable before God. And the false Jesus was a Jesus who was simply a second Moses, a, a greater lawgiver rather than a savior in whose righteousness we are made acceptable to God. 
And the, and the false spirit was simply the setting aside of the power of the Holy Spirit and then trusting my own self, depending on my own flesh to bring about my righteousness. Well, well that counterfeit religion is still around, isn't it? Lots of people still assume that Christianity is simply trying to earn God's favor by keeping God's law. No, that was a counterfeit Christianity. That's a different gospel, Paul says. That's what they dealt with in Galatia. That could have been what's going on in, uh, in uh, Corinth. We're not sure. But it's still something we ought to be aware of, this legalism, counterfeit Christianity. Or it could have been that Paul's talking about uh, the kind of counterfeit Christianity that was starting to creep into the church at, at uh, Colossae, the Gnostic gospel. Gnosticism was an early heresy in the church that just as beginning during the New Testament time and just about took over the church for a couple of hundred years, became a huge problem in the church. In Gnosticism, Jesus is not the eternal Son of God who created the world. Jesus is one of the lesser of many spirit beings between us and God. That's a different kind of Jesus. And, and in Gnosticism, the Spirit is not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was like all things spiritual. And in fact, spiritual things were all that mattered because material things were evil. The spiritual realm was good. So the idea of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in, in fleshly people well, that could never happen in Gnosticism because flesh is evil, spirit's good. Different view of the spirit. So a Gnostic gospel was the pursuit of this special, hidden, spiritual knowledge that only a few had. Only the insiders know. Well, that's a different gospel than proclaiming to the whole world that Jesus saves sinners. It's a different gospel. Sounds so good. Sounds so esoteric. Only if you can understand it. But it's false. It's counterfeit. Though it took over the church. Dan Gibson's Sunday school class, we've been discussing the fact that Gnosticism is reappearing in our day. It's growing like crazy right under our noses. So beware of this counterfeit Christianity. Gnosticism. Is that what was going on in Corinth? We don't know for sure. I think, though, that the Apostle Paul is addressing slightly different error than those other false gospels that the Bible talks about. Uh, something else is going on at Corinth, as best I can understand it. Ralph Martin's uh, commentary on uh, 2 Corinthians has been really helpful to me as I try to get a handle on what this counterfeit Christianity was at Corinth. Let me just uh, share with you some of what he says. The Christ they proclaimed was a Christ according to the flesh, a Jesus who displayed visible and self-centered power. The spirit, as they saw it, was the manifestation of a spirit of authority. So they construed his working as producing lordly power, which would in turn lead them to a posture of boasting. And the gospel, they proclaimed, was branded a false message because it contradicted Paul's message of the cross and of the Christ who did not please himself. These leaders gloried in outward appearance. They had no place for the hiddenness of Christ's weak demeanor and a life of dependent faith. Folks, what was going on in Corinth has been repeated again and again throughout church history. It's, it's a false triumphalism. It's, it's Jesus as the great miracle worker and the, and the great power wielder. 
rather than Christ the crucified one. It's Christianity which is filled with my own power and with my own authority and with my own presence and with my own image. And, and the outward appearance is really important. The New Testament scholar Francis Fallon summarized it this way. He says, another Jesus for Paul's opponents was the wonder-working Jesus rather than Paul's crucified and risen Lord. The alien spirit was the spirit of power and ecstasy which these messengers claimed to possess and embody in their ministry rather than the spirit of Christ which Paul exemplified. The new gospel was the message of power and present glory rather than Paul's gospel of the suffering Christ whose power is displayed incognito in patient love. Beware of counterfeit Christianity. This counterfeit, like the others, is still with us. It's everywhere. So how do we know the difference? How do we differentiate between what's genuine and what's true faith? Well, the standard is what the apostles preached and what the church initially received. We see that repeatedly in verse 4. He talks about the Jesus we preached to you, the spirit which you received, the gospel which you accepted. You see, God's truth has a history, and that history leads us back to the Lord himself. Jesus, the eternal word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. God had spoken in the past through the prophets in lots of ways, but then he spoke through his Son, and he clearly showed us the Father. So Jesus himself is the word. He is the decisive standard of truth. But Jesus didn't just come and appear for a minute and give us a little brief sketch of that and then disappear and leave us on our own again. No, Jesus handpicked during his earthly ministry some apostles, a dozen apostles, handpicked. Spent most of his time not preaching to the multitudes, but training these men. Commissioned them to be his witnesses appeared to them after his resurrection, explained to them the Old Testament scriptures, and then sent them out to, to lay the foundation for the church. And that's exactly what happened. We see the early church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Jude refers to it as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The scripture explains that with signs and wonders that were exactly like what Jesus did, the apostles went out and established the church. They were his credentialed representatives. And that body of truth that they taught, God has now preserved for his church and put in our hands as the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. So the church now possesses an authoritative word of Christ given to us by the apostles who he chose and trained. That faith, that faith is the treasure which the apostles then entrusted to the next generation, and then to the next, and the next, and the next, until it's been entrusted to us. We're not free to change it, only to proclaim it, and live it, and learn it, and pass it on. We must be then very careful that in our generation, no counterfeit Christianity creeps in to change the historic faith that has been entrusted to us by Christ, to his apostles, to his church, to us. Oh, but the apostles not just giving us some cold theology lecture here. 
he's sharing his passion here in this passage about this matter. We can see that in these two illustrations he uses right at the beginning. First, he talks about a bride getting married. Paul seems to put himself in the position as the father of the bride here. Your daughter's getting married. You're all excited about this. Of course, this is a day of arranged marriages. You've worked out all the details. There's an eligible young man and a good family. And here this is all worked out. And you're so proud and jealous that she enter into this marriage purely and that it be a healthy, good marriage. And you like the groom and all these good things. And of course, in other places, the church is called the bride of Christ who waits for her 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 bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. So imagine if you're the father of the bride and you're looking forward to this wedding and you're so concerned for your daughter and then you, you see some strange guy out hitting on your daughter. And you go, whoa, whoa, no, no, no. This is not going to happen. That's how Paul feels. As he watches false teachers come into this church, the bride of Christ, and begin to try to seduce it away from Christ, from simple, pure devotion to Jesus. That's why he's got his back up about all this. That's why he's concerned about counterfeit Christianity. It's a, it's a seduction of the bride. Well, then he points us to another illustration. That's Eve's experience back in the Garden of Eden. You know, sometimes we think that the evil one, that Satan is trying to turn us away from being spiritual, being religious. Oh, make no mistake. In the, in the Garden, Eve was very concerned to be spiritual. In fact, one could argue the deceiver made her more religious, more spiritual. For she's no longer content to just be a human creature enjoying fellowship with God the Creator. He says, I will make you like God. Wow. Now that's spirituality, huh? No, it's self-centered spirituality that is not devotion to the Lord. And in the same way, the apostle, the apostle's concerned for the church, that somehow your minds may be led astray from your pure, pure devotion to Christ. As one writer said while at Corinth, they may have thought otherwise, they were in peril. The tragedy of the Garden of Eden was ominously close to reenactment in Corinth. He says, I fear for you. You stand where Eve stood about to believe a lie. This morning I call you to be diligent about your faith, to guard your heart, to guard your mind, for there are counterfeits being circulated. They look so good, but they are worthless. Beware of counterfeit Christianity. Then there's a second truth here, which goes hand in hand in the first. We spent most of our time on the first, so we'll be brief about the second. But the second truth is this. Beware of imposters in the ministry. Beware of imposters in the ministry. If a stranger passes you a counterfeit $50 bill, you're going to be mad as, as can be, uh, for you got victimized and you, you just lost 50 bucks. In fact, you probably put a sign on the front of your cash register if you own a store saying, we no longer accept anything bigger than a $20 bill. You're not going to get burned again. But suppose you get paid and your boss pays you intentionally in counterfeit money. Now we've got a different problem. 
And that's what's going on at Corinth. It's not just that there's a counterfeit bill, a, a, a counterfeit piece of Christianity that's circulating around the church somewhere. The problem is the counterfeiters are being put in charge of the church. False teachers masquerading as apostles of Christ. So the apostle writes to warn this church and us, beware of imposters even in the ministry. Apostle Paul's troubles in Corinth were not primarily with the people in that church. His trouble was primarily with some leaders who had come in and were trying to gain control. We've talked about them before. They were self-appointed. They were self-approved. They answered to no one, but they claimed to be apostles and to have apostolic authority. They apparently regarded themselves as super apostles. Paul uses that term in some derision for them here. But Paul sees things a bit differently. He realizes these are not super apostles. These are pseudo apostles, false apostles. That's the exact word he uses, pseudo apostles. They're fakes. They're frauds, quacks, phonies, pretenders, imposters in the ministry. So how does Paul, God's true apostle who labored there for years, distinguish himself from these pretenders? Well, he talks about two things, and how we relate these, I, I, we could get into a big discussion. But let me just talk about the two things that he brings up. First, he talks about money in the ministry. Now, this is a hot topic. This is a topic that's always a little sensitive. Paul had spoken very clearly about his views on doing ministry for money, ministers getting paid for what they did. He talked about that back in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. His views, his teaching on the subject, had been stated very plainly. He says those who labor in the gospel have the right to receive a living from the gospel. Those who teach spiritual things have the right to receive back from those who they teach material things. It's not a matter of charity. This is their work, and these are wages that are owed to them responsibly. Now that's what Paul taught. There's no question about that. It's a biblical view. The problem is Paul didn't do that. That's not what he did. I'm not saying he was a hypocrite. He tells us he does not doing that. Back in 1 Corinthians 8, he said that he chooses to lay aside what he knows are his rights and do it differently. And so when he arrived at Corinth, what did he do? Came there to plant a church, to evangelize. What did he do? He set up shop and started making tents and selling them. That was his trade. That's what he knew how to do. And as he preached the gospel, he never took an offering. Preached the gospel. Tomorrow morning, went back and made tents to earn some money to live on. But as an itinerant craftsman, you come into a town and you don't have a business there and you have no clientele, you have no roots there, you can imagine it's hard to make a living. And so he often was in need. But when he was in need and didn't have enough to eat, he still didn't take an offering. Finally, some people up in the church where he'd been earlier, up in Philippi, sent some money, and he accepted that. Now, this behavior got Paul a lot of criticism in Corinth. In the Jewish circles, it was very normal for a rabbi to earn a trade. That was kind of part of the package. You were a scholar, but you learned a trade where you could support yourself. But in Greek, wealthy, upper-class Greek kind of thinking was quite different. 
the typical Greek mentality was that manual labor was dis disdained. It's that slave's work. No free man, especially no philosopher or teacher, would be over here getting his hands dirty with manual labor. That would be demeaning to him. Who would listen to him if he did that? And so these new super apostles who came to Corinth, people you remember who were big on power and authority and image, people for whom eloquent oratory was more important than actually knowing what they were talking about, these new leaders began to persuade the church that Paul really is nothing here. And they lost respect for him. They even suggested that maybe he knew that he wasn't really qualified to be an apostle and that's why he did this mundane work. They even suggested his actions showed a lack of respect for them, maybe a lack of love for them. This is an interesting problem. This is a problem you've probably never seen in the church, nor have I. A minister being criticized for not taking enough money. I don't think that happens anymore, but that's what's going on here. But folks, this was not just some quirky idea which Paul had. This was a matter of principle for him. In these verses before us, in, the, in this middle section here, verse 7 and uh, to 12. He seems to use his practice of working to support himself, not taking money from the church, as proof of his authenticity as an apostle of Christ. So what's the principle? Here, here's, here's what he did. Here's what he believed, as best I can figure it out. Paul would take money from churches after they were established and he was gone on somewhere else. If they wanted to send money to support his ministry, he would take it. But he would not take money from churches where he was preaching and evangelizing and trying to establish that church. He would never take a penny. He would work to support himself or he would live on money that some other church sent him. Why? What's the difference? Why will you take money from the church at Philippi and you won't take money from the church at Corinth? Why? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7, when he's preaching the gospel, it has to be free of charge. That's the issue. In other words, Paul is willing to lay down life. Paul is willing to go hungry sometimes. And we know he did that. To make sure that when people hear the gospel from him, there's no question. It is grace. It is free. And his practice was not negotiable. He says, I'm not about to change this. Verse 12, I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want the opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. You see, Paul understood that true ministers not only preach Christ crucified, they live Christ crucified. They not only preach the cross, they'll take up the cross and follow Christ. This is the big difference between Paul and these other leaders. Paul is not just a proclaimer of the passion story. He lives the passion story. Beware of imposters who live to serve themselves. True ministers follow Christ, even when it costs them dearly. And then Paul, the other issue he takes up is uh, talking about the force that really drives these false leaders. Like counterfeiters of all kinds, these men are really deceivers. 
Verse 13, Paul calls them some names. He says they are pseudo or false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They are those who masquerade as apostles. Every one of those labels involves deceit. But then the apostle says, and no wonder. For Satan masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if Satan's servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Now we don't think of Satan um, looking and sounding like an angel. We have caricatures of Satan and with his pitchfork and his horns and looking all evil. and That's why we're so easily deceived. For Satan seldom comes to us selling evil. He comes sounding spiritual. He doesn't come to us looking like a devil. He comes to us looking like an angel. He doesn't offer to drag, away, drag us away from God. He offers to make us like God. And his covert agents, imposters masquerading as ministers, act the same way. That's what they're up against in Corinth. Masquerading deceivers claiming to be apostles. So how can you tell the difference? between the genuine and the true. Well, let me suggest a few things. First, you need to understand the true gospel. That's where we were a few minutes ago. The, the true Jesus, who's the true Jesus? Who really is Jesus? Who's the true spirit? Who, who really is the spirit? What's the true gospel? What is it really? Because the people that are preaching counterfeits are probably the counterfeiters. The people that are preaching the truth are probably the true. And then you can look at the way they do ministry. This is what Paul's just been talking about. Those who act like Christ, selfless, willing to serve, willing to suffer if necessary for the church, they probably are genuine. Those who preach Christ but serve themselves, use the church to advance their own agenda, run rather than suffer when times get tough, those are probably imposters. In other words, don't just listen watch. That's what Jesus taught us. We read in Matthew 7, Jesus is speaking. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By the fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Thus, Jesus says, by, your, by their fruit, you will know them. In another place, the scripture tells us that the difference in fruit is actually discernible. Paul gives us a list in Galatians 5. He says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And he lists them. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
That's pretty easy to see. Those are fleshly things. Those are counterfeit things. It's of our flesh. It's not of God. On the other hand, the next verse, but the fruit of the Spirit is discernible too. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified that sinful nature with its passions and desires. Instead, you see, they bear the fruit of the Spirit. You can, you see, if you watch, the difference is discernible. Hatred and strife does not look like gentleness and kindness and love. It doesn't. Giving way to every sinful urge does not look like self-control. They're different. So watch and beware. There are imposters. You have to look at what they're producing. But just one note before I quit. Having said all that, let me caution you. You need to be careful to not individually set yourself up as the judge of who's a true minister and who's an imposter. I'm not saying you don't pay attention. You must pay attention. You must think about who you're listening to and what they're saying to you. But Paul is not asking every individual in that church at Corinth to set in judgment about who's a true apostle and who's a fake. Now that's not what's going on there. He's writing to this church, teaching them to distinguish between his long and legitimate ministry to them as apostle of Christ and these newcomers who have come teaching something different and acting in a different way. And he says, can't you see there's a difference here? Look at it. This is from God. This is from the evil one. But if every individual Christian says it's my business to remove people from the ministry that I think I don't like, it's going to be chaos. We have plenty enough of everybody doing their own thing and everybody being their own judge and everybody setting them up themselves up as the authority. No, it's a high view of ministry, a high view of the church, not a low view that the apostle is teaching us as he calls us to beware of imposters who would infiltrate the church posing as ministers of Christ. Now, Paul comes out swinging here. He had a passion for the church. Men masquerading as ministers and wrecking havoc in the church and spreading counterfeit Christianity could not be left alone. It had to be addressed. No matter how timid Paul might have felt, he had to step up and say the hard thing. Jesus was like that, you know. Jesus was the gentle healer, full of compassion and tenderness. But when he saw his father's house being corrupted and true religion being threatened, he made a whip and he drove, the, 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 drove them out. His zeal for the father's house consumed him. And interesting, that word zeal that's used of Jesus, the exact same word as what we have here when Paul says, I am jealous. I have zeal for you with a godly zeal. And likewise, I'm jealous for you, Wiser Lake Chapel. So as best I know, I challenge you this morning, beware. There is counterfeit Christianity around. 
that looks so good and it is worthless. You gotta pay attention to what you believe. And there are counterfeit ministers around. Imposters claiming to be of Christ, but they're not. Pay attention to who you listen to. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that uh, warns us that we struggle to understand it and we struggle even more to know how to apply it and what to do. But, Lord, may we be wiser. May we be more discerning. May we not be like dumb sheep who are just led to slaughter and never even think about where we're going. Lord, may we have the mind of Christ and the discernment that your Spirit gives us, the wisdom to see clearly, to differentiate from, between that which is fleshly and that which is of the Spirit, that which comes from Christ and that which comes from the evil one. May we be careful, Lord, and help one another and hold one another accountable that we not become imposters, that we not buy a counterfeit Christianity. Help us, Lord. And thank you for the promise that you will and that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.